All right, I'd like to welcome everybody. Um, thanks for coming to the Mershon Center. Um, today it's a great uh, pleasure for me to introduce Anita Buckman. Anita, well, the CIA puts uh, a select handful of officers in residence in various academic univers uh, institutions around the country. And we've been lucky. We've had uh, two in the last five or six years. And Anita's been here for a year and plus. This is her second year now. And she came here, uh, I think, almost entirely due to the diligence of Tony Mugen, who I want to recognize and thank. <laughs> who uh, managed to persuade uh, the, the Central Intelligence Agency that we're a great home uh, for these uh, officers in residence and that they could teach uh, at Ohio State in our program for international studies, which is what Tony directs. And so we've been fortunate to have Anita not only as a research scholar at Mershon, but also as a teacher uh, in our classrooms for the past uh, two years. Uh, she has her degree, uh, the BA in uh, Russian studies and language from Cornell and her MA from Harvard in uh, Soviet area studies. She joined the CIA more than 20, uh, no more than 15 years ago to do analytic assessment of Russian and economic political issues. Uh, she's been here looking at both the issues of counterterrorism, homeland security. She served previously on the national, at the National Security Agency, the State Department, the White House. She's been overseas in Moscow. And today, she's going to talk about, I guess, the project she's been working on, which is the historical origins of intelligence. And as I understand it, going all the way back to Sun Tzu. Yeah. So, thank you. Anita, thank you. Okay, I, I think I'm wired up. Can you hear me? Okay. <clears throat> I am just getting a cold, so I'm a little foggy, so bear with me if I uh, get myself interrupted here. Um, I am not going to go into my background, um, what I did at the CIA, any, anything more than, than uh, Rick told you about. Um, but if you have questions about any of that, you can certainly ask those kinds of questions um, when we do the Q&A at the end. Um, just a note on the Q&As, when you do ask questions, and I hope you ask a lot of questions, um, if I know the answer to your question, I will tell you. Um, if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know, and I, there's a lot I don't know. Um, if I do know the answer, but what information I have is classified and I cannot tell you, then I'll tell you exactly that, just so that we all know where we stand on those, those issues. One other disclaimer I have to make is that um, if we get to talk about um, opinions, any opinion I may express is mine alone and should not be taken as expressing the opinion of the CIA as a whole or any other government entity. So given that, we'll go ahead, go ahead and get started. Um, there has always been a need for intelligence. And at its basis, intelligence is trying to figure out what's the other guy up to. Um, you may remember, those of you who have seen the movie 2001, those famous opening scenes of there's proto-humans, um, there's two different groups. Um, they were in conflict over scarce resources. In that case, they were fighting over water, which is still something people fight over today. Um, and each group really needed to know what the other group was up to. One group, as you may remember, developed a new weapon. They suddenly had a, had a tool. <clears throat> the other group did not know about the new weapon and did not know how to counter the new weapon, and therefore they got beaten. And you could call that the first intelligence failure. And it still happens today. 
more recently than in the 2001 movie. Um, we will talk a little bit about a Chinese general named Sun Tzu. Um, he wrote a series of essays called The Art of War, and I'd like to spend a little bit of time just talking about his ideas, um, both to show you how old the intelligence profession is um, and because a lot of what he says and talked about is still relevant today. Um, if anybody's interested, I'm taking my comments from the edition translated by Samuel Griffith. Anybody has a copy of that? Sun Tzu <coughs> lived more than 2,000 years ago, roughly somewhere 400 to 320 BC, um, although details are sketchy, um, and there's certainly a lot of dispute about his exact dates. Um, his real name apparently was Sun Wu. Sun Tzu is an honorific, roughly meaning Master Tzu, Master Sun. He worked as a mercenary, um, somewhat akin to a common-day military consultant, um, and he used those experiences to write a military treatise, The Art of War. His most fundamental principle for the conduct of war is that all warfare is based on deception, that is, on intelligence. And the supreme art of war, he says, is to subdue the enemy without fighting. He was convinced that careful planning based on sound information of the enemy would contribute to a speedy military decision. In his view, the army was an instrument which delivered the final blow only after an enemy had previously been made vulnerable. Prior to, he talks a lot about secret agents and what he says they should do prior to actual hostilities. He said secret agents should separate an enemy's allies from him. They should spread false rumors and misleading information about the enemy. They should corrupt and subvert enemy officials. They should create and exacerbate internal discord among the enemy. <clears throat> and they should nurture internal moles on the enemy's side. Other agents, he says, should concentrate on learning as much as possible about the enemy's army, including weaponry, manpower, morale, all those kinds of things. He notes that it is foolish to struggle with an enemy while begrudging spending sufficient funds to understand that enemy. In other words, he understood good, in <coughs> good, intelligence, <coughs> excuse me, good intelligence does not come cheap. He also notes that the enlightened prince and the wise general conquer the enemy because of foreknowledge. And he points out that foreknowledge is not obtained from spirits or the gods, by analogy with past events, or even by pure reasoning, but must be obtained from men who know the enemy situation. In today's parlance, we call this human intelligence, um, and it is still certainly an issue today and needs to be um, addressed. Sun Tzu certainly understood the need to scout out an opposing army's disposition, but he also clearly understood what we now call leadership analysis. That is, the importance of knowing the personal characteristics of enemy leaders. Agents, he says, secret agents, should inquire into these in minute detail. And that is what our leadership analysts today do. <clears throat> That's enough um, about Sun Tzu, the art of war. I just wanted to show you how, how far back the, the uh, profession of intelligence goes. Um, but I just want to add a note here that Sun Tzu and his art of war is used in the training of, among others, the Chinese, Russian, and Japanese military forces, and our own, I might add. Early use of intelligence techniques and espionage was certainly not limited to Eastern countries. 
both the ancient Greeks and Romans were very good at it. Remember the Trojan horse? A really good early example of deception, and it worked to a T. Um, there are also numerous instances in the Bible of using spies and intelligence. Um, for example, when the Israelites were attempting to reconnoiter the situation in the Promised Land, Joshua sent in two men into Jericho with specific orders to spy out the situation and report back. So it was even used in those cases. In Europe, by the late Middle Ages, regular means of intelligence collection had been established. The Italians made an important contribution to this growth um, in the 15th century by establishing permanent embassies in other countries, part of whose duties were to find out what's going on and report back. The Venetians were particularly adept at this. Um, most of their reports were full of accurate observations, and many of them went beyond just observing and had very detailed and very good analysis of whatever the situation was. In the 16th century, Sir Francis Walsingham served as Queen Elizabeth I's Secretary of State, and he was her chief spymaster. He sent out spies both to gather information and to infiltrate enemy courts, particularly the one of Philip II of Spain. He instituted a system of intercepting domestic and foreign correspondence, reading the messages, deciphering the codes if they were in code, then resealing the messages and sending them on their way. His methods allowed Elizabeth to uncover the plot to place Mary, Queen of Scots, on the throne in 1585 and also helped lead to the defeat of the Spanish Armada in 1588. By the late 18th and early 19th centuries, a distinction began to emerge between the work of internal security within a country and the collection of foreign intelligence largely due to the growth of internal dissidents and uprisings, which threatened the stability and power of the autocratic and imperial countries. As a rule, the general rule, the size and power of an internal security service is in direct ratio to the extent of suspicion and fear of the ruling clique. It is thus no surprise that one of the strongest and most pervasive political um, internal police systems arose in Russia. No surprise at all. Getting a little closer to home, um, in the US, the use of intelligence goes all the way back to the American Revolution. Washington, George Washington, was very interested in these kinds of things, um, and he was, in effect, his own spy master. In November 1775, the Second Continental Congress created a Committee of Secret Correspondence. I'm sure a lot of you remember this. Um, Benjamin Franklin was one of its original members. The committee employed secret agents abroad, conducted covert operations, devised codes and tried to break those of others, funded propaganda activities, read and analyzed foreign publications, authorized the opening of private mail, established a courier system, and developed its own maritime capability separate from that of the Navy. Most of this, of course, our intelligence community does to this day. France, as of course you know, supported the colonists against Great Britain, and by about mid-1776, they began sending funds through a front company set up specifically for that purpose. Um, and again, we use front companies to this day to, co to cover um, actions that we don't want to become known. 
In November 1776, three commissioners from the Continental Congress, Franklin Jefferson and Silas Dean, arrived in France to set up a U.S. mission. It quickly became an intelligence and propaganda center. Spain also clandestinely supplied aid to the colonists, um, much of it passing through a small island in the West Indies called St. Eustatia. This had become the major source of gunpowder for the rebels and one of the main routes for communication between American agents abroad and the people back home. You can think of St. Eustatia, which was a Dutch free port set in the middle of English, um, French, and Spanish um, colonies, as a kind of a revolutionary war equivalent of post-World War II Berlin. It's a hotbed of spying, clandestine activities, gun running, smuggling, you name it, going on all over the place. During the American Revolution, the British, of course, were superior in firepower and number of troops. So Washington made frequent use of deception techniques in the fight. He allowed fabricated documents to fall into the hands of the enemy. He gave couriers bogus information, then had them arrange to be captured by the British so they could hand over their bogus information. This is something that, that I didn't mention, but Sun Tzu really liked doing this. He thought that was a good idea. He made false purchases of supplies to convince the British that he had a larger force than he actually did. And he even built some fake military facilities to fool them. He was apparently very good at this, or the British were very bad at at looking at deception techniques because he had the British convinced that his 3,000-man army outside Philadelphia was actually 40,000 people strong. So he he had them fooled good on that one. During the revolution, both sides also used various intelligence technologies for the time. Um, Silas Dean, while working in Paris, used several types of invisible ink, one of which just needed heat to to have it um, become apparent, the other one you had to apply a special chemical to the paper, and then you could read the writing. They used various methods of cryptography to conceal their communications. Um, They tried to, and each side tried to break the ciphers of the other side. They sometimes used very small, very thin lid or silver containers to hold their documents, um, and in case they were captured, they could swallow them. Um, The ones who swallowed lead didn't do very well. (laughs) It is a poison, so they quickly learned to switch it to silver. Perhaps the most advanced technology of the time, um, if not the most successful, was something called the turtle. Um, This was a one-man submarine made out of oak designed to affix timed explosives to the bottom of British ships. Um, It had a few technical glitches, um, one of which um, they used candles for illumination inside it, which obviously used up all the oxygen and then the people would die. (laughs) Um, They also didn't realize how powerful a drill they would need to get through the copper-clad bottoms of the British warships. Um, It did have a couple of minor successes blowing up small ships, but before they could actually um, have it do anything serious, the, the turtle itself got blown up when the U.S. ship that it was attached to. Its mothership got blown up. So that's about all they did with the turtle. But it was very advanced technology for the time. Moving on in time, um, intelligence was also used extensively by both sides during the Civil War, American Civil War. Washington, D.C. was the capital of the North, but it's located below the Mason-Dixon line, adjacent to slaveholding states. It therefore was full of Southern sympathizers, 
and became a hotbed of clandestine activities of all sorts. The South was able to recruit numerous spies to give them information on the North's plans. Among them were several women who moved in the elite social circles and were privy to the North's intentions and morale. Some of this they learned through what's called pillow talk. Um, as well as purely military information, such as which regiments were being sent where. Um, one method of concealment they used, um, at the time um, all women had very long hair and they would put it up in big buns um, and they used to secrete their secret communications inside their buns, inside their hair buns. On the Confederacy side, they set up what is called the Secret Service Bureau. Um, and this bureau ran agents to and from Union territory passing messages from Richmond to contacts in Canada and in Europe. One of its most important tasks was obtaining what we now call open source information, um, mainly newspapers from the North, getting all of the newspapers and reading them and getting information from them. Um, they also used the newspaper personal columns to communicate with agents. And that, I can tell you, also is still used to this day. The North, of course, also used its share of spies um, and employed a guy, you may re recognize the name, Alan Pinkerton, um, to gather intelligence for the North. Um, nevertheless, at least early in the war, the North did not have a centralized, directed system of gathering information. Anybody who was gathering information, such as Pinkerton, was just working for a particular general or another particular officer. Um, intelligence collection, in fact, was so decentralized that at one point, Abe Lincoln hired an agent of his own, paid him directly, and received his reports personally, because there was no centralized place to do this. <coughs> Ulysses Grant grew to value good intelligence, particularly after the Battle of Shiloh, which was April 1862. Um, at that battle, he thought the Confederate forces were some 20 miles away on the morning they attacked. And although Grant won the two-day battle, it was at a cost of more than 10,000 Union soldiers killed or wounded. So at that point, he decided, I better get better intelligence. <clears throat> Early in 1863, Colonel George Sharp set up something called the Bureau of Military Information, which re produced reports based on what we call all-source intelligence. Um, in his case, that meant information collected from agents, interrogations of prisoners, Southern newspapers, documents retrieved from corpses on the battlefield, all of those kinds of things. And at one point, he had some 70 agents working for him, putting all of these reports together. One very interesting um, story as part of the Civil War is the North's use of information gleaned by Southern slaves. There were so many valuable pieces of information obtained that these reports were then given a category and a name of their own. <clears throat> Excuse me. They're called black dispatches. And this, on the CIA website, there's actually a, a, a treatise on the black dispatches from the Civil War. You know, I'm sure, that Harriet Tubman helped run the Underground Railroad to get slaves to freedom. You may not know that she also served as one of the Civil War's most daring and effective spies. She assembled a small reconnaissance unit of ex-slaves in South Carolina who knew the region and could gather timely intelligence. She even participated herself in the equivalent of some special forces operations, including in one case helping to raid a Confederate supply depot. 
One of the boldest but least known of these northern spies was a free American, African-American woman named Mary Elizabeth Bowser. <clears throat> she agreed to go undercover as a slave and infiltrate the official residence of Confederate President Jefferson Davis. This, as you can imagine, was extremely dangerous. She has no protection whatsoever. And also, it must have personally been extremely difficult to do this, to go from being a freed person to being or seeming to be a slave. The ruse, however, worked perfectly. The Southerners assumed that no African-American person could either read or write, so that Jefferson Davis did not bother to um, cover up his papers on his desk, so when she would go in to clean the room, she would be able to read everything that he had. Um, she apparently had a photographic memory because she would then go and meet her handler and could just tell them verbatim exactly what she read in the documents on Jefferson Davis's desk. In the Civil War, as in the Revolution, both sides also made use of the latest technologies in their intelligence efforts. The North made extensive use of balloons for reconnaissance, um, even linking some via cables directly to telegraphs for what we now call real-time transmission. A little lower tech than we do these days, but same idea. Um, and the North made extensive use of the telegraph as a key component of what would be the first modern military communication system. Both sides also made the extensive use of the latest in, in cipher technology. I've gone through all this to show you that intelligence played a strong role in the birth and development of our country. <clears throat> it also played a strong role in other ways, um, although I won't go into any details. Most of you know it also played a key role in getting the U.S. into World War I with the Zimmerman telegram, which was intercepted by the British and given to us, showing that Mexico, um, that they wanted to give the U.S. to Mexico, that they would come in against us. However, despite all this use of intelligence, the revolution, civil war, um, intelligence in the U.S. only became formalized at the onset of World War II. It was not really felt necessary earlier for a couple of reasons. First of all, the U.S. is really well protected by oceans. And the only two neighbors we have, we have very good relations with. So it wasn't felt to be that urgent. And up until the Second World War, the U.S. was not really into being a world power and expanding its, its reach <clears throat> into the rest of the world and into international issues. But then World War II, and we get Pearl, Pearl Harbor, which is usually described as a huge intelligence failure. Um, I'm not going to take the time to go into this now, but we can certainly discuss it if you want to ask questions about, was Pearl Harbor an intelligence failure? We can talk about that in Q&A if you want to. But after Pearl Harbor, FDR created the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, under a man named Bill Donovan. This was now, for the first time, a formal and independent intelligence organization, although it was still relatively small. The focus was on operations um, overseas, but it also did a little bit of analysis. For the first time, the OSS put analysts together with people who were doing the operations, um, which was different from the British model. So this is the first time that had been done. From the beginning, unfortunately, the OSS had difficult relations with the military, who thought they were infringing on their territory, um, and with State Department, neither one of whom wanted an independent, <coughs> excuse me, independent intelligence entity. 
General MacArthur was able to exclude OSS from operations in the Pacific theater until very late in the war. And the FBI, under J. Edgar Hoover, excluded the OSS from any operations in South America. State Department, working closely with their friends in the military, even restricted OSS access to German and Japanese intercepts. So the OSS had a, had a hard time getting going at first. There are lots of myths and lots of romanticizing now over what the OSS actually accomplished. The reality is a bit different. Spy work is hard, dirty, and dangerous. It is not glamorous at all. Um, the OSS used mostly military cover, but also some diplomatic and what we call non-official cover. <coughs> at its peak, the OSS had 13,000 people on staff. About 25% were civilians, the rest were military. Um, and about 7,500 of them served overseas. About 4,500 of the staff were women, and some 900 of the women served overseas, even on some of the operational exploits. One tidbit I like here is that Julia Child, the Fed French chef, um, she actually worked with the OSS, OSS um, in France during this period. Immediately after World War II, Truman disbanded the OSS, decided right at right away that we don't need this kind of intelligence function anymore, and he parceled out the functions to State Department and War Departments. He soon changed his mind, however, and realized that there was a need for a permanent intelligence service. So one reason for the, the start of what we see now as the current intelligence community, obviously, was Pearl Harbor, never again, you know, never going to let that happen again. But I think equally as important was the start of the Cold War. The USSR had already started dominating, if not outright annexing, Eastern Europe by late 1945, right after the war, and had it pretty well consolidated by mid-1947. Just to refresh your memories a little bit, um, some of these, these incidents, um, some of these actually happened before the end of the war. The war ended in May and September of 1945, uh, Germany and Japan. Back in March of 1945, Romania was forced to accept a communist-dominated government. In June of 1945, Poland formed a pro-Soviet government. In November of 1945, pro-Soviet governments were established in Hungary, Albania, and Bulgaria. And Churchill's famous Iron Curtain speech was delivered in March 1946. So it was all really early. So Truman's looking at the world the way it's looking now, and he decided we have to do something. So they passed the National Security Act of 1947. This is the act that set up the intelligence community pretty much as we know it today. And it was remarkably stable. Basics unchanged until 2004. The 1947 National Security Act was intentionally vague about CIA duties. Um, but it did make it clear, and it is true to this day, that the CIA has no law enforcement authorities, and no internal domestic security functions. The Act also set up the National Security Council, and it's the National Security Council that a couple of years later issued directives telling the CIA what they could do. Some aspects of the way the intelligence community was set up and organized seem to make it a bit disjointed. That's a polite term. Um, this is true, and in fact, it was done deliberately. Truman deliberately set it up so that neither the military side 
nor the civilian side would totally dominate the intelligence community. Thus, right now, either the head or the deputy head of the CIA can be a military person, but not both at the same time. And to this day, the military controls large portions of the intelligence function, such as the National Security Agency. But other parts are totally separated from the Pentagon. And again, they did this deliberately. In addition, the intelligence community was deliberately created to have competing centers of analysis to avoid what we call groupthink, where everybody kind of says, well, if somebody says it, then we all must agree, um, or, and to avoid having one agency's more narrow perspective on an issue. <clears throat> Thus, we have competition between the CIA for analysis, State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research does all source analysis, and the Pentagon's Defense Intelligence Agency, all using the same materials, using all sources, giving analysis on the same issues, but from different points of view. So that's all I have prepared, um, and we can now turn it over and have lots of questions, I hope. Yes? <coughs> well, sorry if I cannot speak properly because I have some sort of laryngitis, I think. But, but in 1957, um, there was a CIA uh, activity in Southeast Asia, and according to the memoir of one of the Talk, I, I don't know this specific issue, um, but let me talk about it in general. What you're really talking about is, is covert action. Um, the way it works right now is, and everybody thinks the CIA just goes out and does covert action doing whatever it wants to around the world. Um, it's actually not true. The president has to decide that he wants a covert action to be taken. Um, <clears throat> and the president signs off what's called a presidential finding, um, and then the CIA will do whatever it is that, that they do. Um, and those kinds of covert actions can range all the way from very mild things like just propaganda, dropping leaflets, um, radio stations, all the way up to actual covert oper operations to try to bring down a government, um, which is actually rare. <laughs> um, but it does, it does, has done those in the past um, at the direction of the president. So now I don't know that particular so issue. Agents cannot do it independently. Absolutely not. Now there may be a rogue agent who did some things. Um, he should not have done. But rogue agents out, out in the field do not get to, to decide just to go and do those kinds of things. Yes? I wonder if you could comment on the, uh, uh, what appears to be a conflict in terms of the between the national assessment that was recently issued uh, regarding the Iran and recent comments <coughs> They, they may be. Um, I haven't. Part of the problem here is that what we've, the part that was released of the new NIE was only the, the, the less nuanced, called the executive summary. Um, the rest of the paper that has all the nuanced stuff in it um, is classified. 
Um, so I haven't read it. I, don't, I can't get to read classified materials here. Um, they may be in conflict, but they may be more in agreement if you could read the whole paper that talks about some of the nuanced stuff. Um, the executive summary at the front tends to kind of avoid all those nuances and just kind of give the basic bottom line. Um, I do want to talk a little bit, though, that, that leads me to an interesting point, which is, you know, how, how could the CIA turn itself, you know, 180 degrees on reporting on a particular issue? Um, we do that all the time. When, it, when we write for the president or whatever, we're writing based on the information we have at that time. Um, and one of our jobs is, if new information comes in that makes us change our mind, then it is our duty to write again and say, <clears throat> you know, new, new information came in or whatever the thing is, and therefore, instead of what we wrote last time, this is what we now believe. So we do change our minds. It's not really changing our mind. It's, just, it's usually based on new information, a new analysis of the situation. But it may look like, you know, we're flip-flopping. <coughs> there was a yeah, question here. Um, in regards to military relations to the CIA and other intelligence communities, um, I heard that often military officers and personnel will be transferred into intelligence agencies to help with their work. I wonder if you could uh, discuss that a little bit. Okay, <coughs> That's true. Um, I, <clears throat> I, I work on the excuse me. <clears throat> I work on the analytical side, so I don't know much about operations. I wouldn't be surprised. I know even on the an, on the analytical side, um, we do have people come in from the military. <clears throat> it's part of their you know getting rotations out, doing other things, um, and they, they come and work for us for a couple of years. So sure, there's a lot of that, a lot of interaction, um, and we do have people who also go down, <clears throat> for example, and work at um, DIA Defense Intelligence Agency again for a little while to get a different point of view, and then go back to their regular jobs. So sure, there's a lot, of, a lot of back and forth. Yes. During the Cold War, there was a, a heavy reliance on imagery intelligence. Yes. And now that that's sort of over. Yes. And there's a new dynamic that we face. Do you see more reliance on imagery intelligence? Yes. Good question. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> the intelligence was developed in in the Cold War. I mean, imagery and satellites and all that kind of stuff. It's really great for counting tanks. You know, looking at order of battle, how many missiles, how many bombers, all that kind of stuff. It's really good at, and that's what we needed to know. It doesn't help you at all to find a terrorist cell. Okay, even if you want to use technological methods to eavesdrop on them, you still have to know where they are first. Um, so we really have to rely more on human intelligence. Um, human intelligence is really hard. It's much harder, actually. Not nearly as expensive, I might add, but much harder um, to infiltrate or get information from, say, a terrorist cell. They, they don't just let anybody into the terrorist cell. Um, so it is much harder. Um, we normally say to develop a good agent who can penetrate whatever it is you're trying to penetrate, it takes a good five to seven years to train that person. So we're working hard at it, but you're absolutely right. It, more em emphasis right now on human intelligence, other kinds of things other than our, our technical needs. Yes? Okay.
I, I, I really don't know. I don't know if, if the reports got lost, if the reports were just discounted. Um, when you've got reports like that, one of the problems with human intelligence, and this is kind of relates to, to other issues too, is, is if, if you've got something reporting back, you really need to go, there are other things that you have to consider with, before you decide whether you're going to believe that report or not. One of the things that you need to consider is does the person giving you that information have an agenda? Um, <clears throat> are they doing it just for the money? You know, wh why are they telling us this? Are they trying to sell us a line um, for their own purposes? Um, so I really don't know the answer, but there might be something like that going on that at the time they just didn't think those reports were very valid. I don't know for sure, though. Yes? Uh, in some instances, we're hearing now that Russian intel activity has gone back for it, in some cases surpassed uh, <laughs> Um, up, up and rising. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. They're, they, um, I guess I get a lot of questions about, you know, what, what is Putin like and what, what are things like under Putin, and I have a really short answer. Putin is KGB. Okay, that's really all you need to know. It's really all you need to know. Um, yes, they are definitely increasing their efforts. Um, for one thing, they have more money, so they can do it. Um, <clears throat> for another thing, they've kind of passed the point where they were really turned inward for a really short while after the end of, of the Cold War. So now they're, now they're um, spreading their power around. So absolutely, they are, they are. Another one we worry about is China. Same, same kind of reasons. China is now expanding its influence. Yes? <coughs> Oh, sure. Um, <clears throat> read the front of your newspaper, okay? Russian, Chinese, <clears throat> Arabic, North Korea, Korean. Um, <clears throat> then we have like Dari, Pashto, places like that, Hindi, those kinds. Yeah. They are, we do have a critical, critical list. Yes? Um, recently, uh, the Pentagon has begun to, begin to uh, set up an Africa command uh -huh. for all operations in Africa. Right. What is the intelligence community? Why, why do we care about Africa? <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely. We have to pay attention to Africa for a bunch of reasons. <clears throat> one is energy, okay? We always have to pay attention wherever there's energy. Um, another one is humanitarian issues. There's a lot of humanitarian issues in Africa. Um, the CIA, and you might say, you know, why does the CIA look at humanitarian issues, okay? We look at them not from the issue of the humanitarian issue itself, because other people deal with that. Um, but what is the impact? And humanitarian issues can have impacts on stabilities of governments, which we care about. Um, huge migrations, if you get huge migrations of people across borders, okay, that, that might destabilize an area. Um, we care about the spread of disease in Africa for the same kinds of reasons, especially HIV, AIDS, and those kinds of things. Um, we care about destabilization, because um, it has a lot of impacts. We also care about Africa because other countries, Russia and particularly China, are extending their tentacles into Africa, 
Um, China, in China's case, it's largely a resource issue, um, but they are giving a lot of money <coughs> to the African countries, um, so they're starting to you know, spread their little tentacles. Um, so we care too. We have to pay attention. Yes, Todd. Uh, just a comment relating to the last two questions. I on the intelligence community's risk of language needs are not African. Well, the African languages. Yes. And if you, particularly if you have African languages and Arabic, that'd be really good. <laughs> yes, in the back. And Chinese. Yeah, well, <laughs> dream on. Um, with uh, in, in the, the global war on terror and the global environment, how have things like the Patriot Act and all this changed the mission of some of the uh, large intelligence agencies, NSA, CIA, and maybe subverted things like uh, Executive Order 1233 of, of the early Reagan administration? It hasn't subverted the executive order. The only thing that can subvert an executive order is another executive order. So we still don't do assassinations, for example. <laughs> That's where you're going. So we don't do that. It has affected us um, to some extent. Certainly all of the agencies within the intelligence community certainly were focused more on terrorism than we used to be. Um, and given that there is only a finite amount of resources, that we do not have all the money in the world, people think the intelligence community does, but we don't, um, that means we have to put less attention on other things, so absolutely true. Um, the FBI is actually the one that is having the most um, difficulty adjusting, um, and they have to make the biggest adjustment going from an agency that has functioned and given its rewards and everything based on capturing criminals after they commit an act and taking them to court and having the court, you know, put them in jail. Um, now trying to figure out how to go and turn that into an intelligence activity where you want to get people before they do anything. Um, so it's really hard for them. But we've all changed a little bit. Um, we've also changed in the fact that we now cooperate a whole lot more. Um, it ain't perfect by any means. Um, some of you already know this. Um, but one, one of the things that I did, I was working on counterintelligence right after 9-11. Um, in starting up what is now the National Counterterrorism Center. Um, and half of the, half of the um, analysts working for me were CIA analysts, and the other half were FBI analysts, all working together um, with other people in, in the building, too. So it's changed quite a bit. Just changed our focus quite a bit. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So from uh, your the analysis uh, the, the, the section of the intelligence, I wonder, is there any big significant change in the in, 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 in this, uh, this section of analysis in the intelligence about how to deal with that changes of the amount of information? Yeah. How to make the solid 
You're absolutely right. The problem now, except for a few places like people who are looking at North Korea, <laughs> where we still don't get much information, the problem now is not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not lack of information. It's trying to pick out the good little bits of information from the huge stack of information that comes in daily. Um, we have a lot of ways to do this. Our, our technical people, and I am by no means a technical person, um, have various algorithms and all kinds of things to help us get just the right kinds of information. Um, it is certainly a huge issue. Um, there are all kinds of ways that we play with it these days to make sure that the people get the information they need, um, everything they need. Um, we have people, for example, whose sole job is to sit out there and read all of the jihadist websites okay, in Arabic and then pass the information on to the rest of us so that analysts don't have to spend their time doing that. Somebody else will do it for us. Um, but it's hard. It's a hard issue. It hasn't really been resolved. Of how, do you, how do you figure out out of the huge stream of information coming in the exact one that might tell you something's going to happen. It's hard. It's hard. Um, they are working on it. Other questions? Yes. Yeah, recently, uh, relations between Venezuela and the U.S. have been less than stellar. <laughs> um, that's, that's a diplomatic way of putting it. Uh, uh, Colombia recently came out and said that the Venezuelan government had given, I think it was around $300 million to FARC. I, yeah, I just saw that. And I was wondering if can see the U.S. putting Venezuela on the state-sponsored terrorism list or because of their oil interests that they would not do something like that? <laughs> you are asking a policy question, okay? Intelligence agencies are not policy, okay? We don't make policy. We don't suggest policy, so I would not tell the government what to do. Um, you know, pick your choice. Um, we certainly need their oil. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very strange I situation. I guess how credible would you think that, that information is and that the fact that Columbia said they, had a, they found a laptop that, that had information? I, I don't know. I'd have to see the information. Okay. Yeah. One, of, one of the big problems also with information is, is denial and deception. Okay? Is somebody faking the information? Um, is it not there? Uh, one of the problems, and this can go back to, to the WMD stuff in Iraq before the, the Iraq war, is are you not seeing something because it's not there? Or are you not seeing something because it's well hidden? That's a tough call. That's a really tough call. So I'd have to actually study the information, study the laptop, decide if it was valid information first. And you can, anybody you want to ask those strange myths you've heard about the CIA? Those are okay too? Yeah, oh goody, we got one. Oh good, I always like at least one. That's okay. That's okay. You may get a goofy answer back. But. Okay. <laughs> Not. A lot. <laughs> a lot, actually. A lot. A fun, here's, a, here's a funny story. Um, just tell you about. Like we don't know everything. Um, I was a brand new analyst. <clears throat> I'd never, you know, I've never done this before. I was a brand new analyst. I'd been there a couple of months or whatever. Um, we get a call from the White House. Okay, this, by the way, is like, blah, White House. Um, so they called up, and they wanted to know, and I had to write a paper. They wanted to know all about there was a, a trade dispute between us and the Russians about potash. Okay. So the first thing I did, this was like pre-Google. first thing I did was go to the dictionary. What the hell is potash? <laughs> and why does anybody care? Um, so if we have something new, yeah, we'll Google it. 
Absolutely. For Google people, absolutely. Absolutely we do. Wikipedia is another problem. <laughs> um, we have something now called Intellipedia, which is an internal you know, classified format for doing the same kind of thing as, Intelli as Wikipedia does, um, except that it is not anonymous on purpose. We want to know who's saying whatever. <clears throat> and it's just a way, it's, a, it's a, um, an informal way of just exchanging ideas, chatting, and I bet you there's people chatting about what's going on in Venezuela. So, yes. Recommended. <laughs> we still do hire some people just for the bachelor's, um, but a, a master's will certainly increase your. Although, just a bachelor's, if you have a bachelor's and good language skills or a bachelor's in military experience or some other experience, then that would be fine. Can I, can I say something? Sure. We've, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've just placed young international studies student. She's only 21. She, she was an intern. She went to Washington Business Central and she'd been hired from the time she graduated with her, with her bachelor of milk and milk was going to be educated further. Yes, yes. There's lots of internships available uh, through, the, the, through these, these agencies. And I might, yeah, I might throw out here that not just the CAA, but all the parts, the 16 parts, the intelligence community, most of us are all hiring. <laughs> so, and we all have websites. So check out the websites. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I don't have a problem with that. If I did, I wouldn't work there. Um, this is something we, we do talk about ethics. We do have a little section on ethics in the courses I teach here. Um, and we do go through ethics training at the agency um, where the, the basic underlying issue is, is if we want information, and we kind of all agree that we need information, we need to know what's going on in the other countries, particularly our adversaries. Um, and some of these secret methods are the only way we're going to find out. But if we talk about them in public, then we're going to lose those sources. And if you're talking about places like Russia and somebody finds out who are sources in Russia, then those people not only get jailed, they get killed. So I don't have a problem with it <laughs> on a personal level. Yeah. Um, then, then you. Um, you said that a master's degree is recommended. So is a PhD for a closer um, <clears throat> PhDs tend to be a little narrower. <laughs> um, we can mold people with just a master's a little bit better. But for some types of accounts, we also need some PhDs who are very specialized in what they do. So we need some of both. We need some of both. Yes. All right, I'll take your bait. Um, <laughs> how do you consider Pearl Harbor anything other than a philosophy? <laughs> <laughs> because um, even the information, even if we, if if, even if all the information had been put together, okay, it did not say where Pearl Harbor was going to be, even when they decoded it afterwards. Um, we knew that there was going to be an attack somewhere. The best guess we had was Southeast Asia somewhere. Um, it it kind of actually was, though, an intelligence failure in some ways. Um, I consider an intelligence failure not so much the, the actual intelligence itself, because that didn't say where it was. Even the Germans didn't know. The Japanese only told the Germans about a couple of days ahead of time that there was going to be a Pearl Harbor. The problem was that as, as a country, the US could not conceive of 
Japanese actually attacking our shores. Um, and I personally, this is my personal opinion, um, I also think that there was some racism involved. That we not, could not conceive that um, an Eastern race could actually attack and beat us. Just was not, you know, it was not within the realm of thought at the time. And then that was obviously wrong. <laughs> um, we were really wrong on that one. So to that extent, I think it was an intelligence failure. Yeah? Um, when looking for um, possible uh, CIA do you prefer people with military experience or with military experience? It doesn't matter. Both. It doesn't matter. Um, military experience would probably be a plus. Probably be a plus on the on the clandestine side because you've had you've had gun train, you know, weapons training and all that kind of stuff. So it would probably be a plus. Yes. For the careers, those people who are interested. We have recruiters here every single quarter, multiple times. So you can apply online, but they're getting ten thousand, maybe more. When we have the recruiters here, you can meet with them face-to-face. It was a wonderful opportunity to ask all of these questions, give a person your resume, and get all of these answers. And do you mind if people who are interested come to, to meet with you? Uh, um, you can, but I am not a recruiter. Okay, I, I am general, specific, but sure, sure, people can come, come see me. Sure. Yes? Oh, it's, very, it's still very important, absolutely. On those kinds of things, it's still very important regarding China. It's still extremely important to get information on North Korea, for example. We have very few other sources. But where it doesn't work, unfortunately, as well, is like on terrorists. Um, but it's, sure, we still, we still need them. It's just that we also need a much more robust human intelligence effort. And that just takes a lot of time. <laughs> okay. Tony's Tony smiling because we, we also taught a course last quarter on uh, the conspiracy myths around 9-11. Um, you, can't, you can't get rid of myths, okay? That's the bottom line. You can't get rid of myths, okay? They're going to be there. Um, as best I can tell, there are a lot of myths out there that either FDR or Churchill or both of them knew about Pearl Harbor ahead of time and deliberately didn't do, deliberately didn't do anything to get us into the war. As best I can tell, that is not true, okay? They did not know ahead of time specifically that there was going to be a Pearl Harbor. But, you know, people will believe what they want to believe. No, the, the analytical arm is all source. It's just that to, as part of our all source information, we need more human. So more human is great. That doesn't mean we need less of the other stuff. Um, <clears throat> one of the little secrets about the analytical work is that roughly, again, it varies depending on what you're looking at, roughly 90% of what we look at is, is open source material. Um, but we need the human in addition. And on particular issues like terrorism, the human is just more important. Um, as far as we're concerned, um, the idea that open source is now directly under the DNI um, is actually a good thing because it may raise the profile of open source. Most analysts think that there should be more open source, not less. 
and that's more important than ever. Um, things like the jihadist websites. Okay, we've got to pay attention to those. That's where they put their stuff out. Um, so it is important, and, and we're hoping that having that come directly now under the DNI will actually increase their budget so they can do more. We need both. It's not one or the other, not at all. Can you uh, go in into a little bit more detail <clears throat> the Chinese efforts like within the United States uh, to expand their test intelligence? I can't just because I don't know. <laughs> um, I, when I teach my courses, I do have a section on, on China, and I bring in an expert from the CIA <laughs> to talk about it, because I really do not know anything about China. I just don't. Question? Okay, thank you. Thank you, Nita. I want to make one comment, just to spare Anita. Um, the program under which she's here on campus prohibits her from recruiting. Right. I am not a recruiter. She's not a recruiter. And so if you're interested in talking to her about Russia or CIA activities or that kind of thing, she's perfect for you. If you want a job with the CIA, <laughs> go see the recruiters that Lance uh, said are here. They're from a different office within CIA. They're Correct. part of a different function. And it's actually, uh, Anita is not allowed. Uh, to recruit you, and I don't want Correct. you to come over here and, <laughs> and get a job. Get a job. <laughs> uh, with that said, <laughs> I want to thank you, Anita, okay. and thank all of you for coming. It was a very <laughs>